Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to From the Press Box, the Holland Sentinel Sports Desk weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything sports. I'm sports editor Dandy Adana, along with our assistant sports editor Will Kennedy. And uh, we got a lot to discuss today. We've got uh, Zealand native Jim Cott's Hall of Fame chances. That's votes coming up Sunday. We'll talk about that. High school basketball has tipped off. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but we got to start with the game, Will. I mean, Michigan, Ohio State, that was uh, just a stunning thing. I mean, I never I never thought that they had a sh- that much of a shot to win. And, and the way that Michigan dominated Ohio State at the line was just incredible. What was your take on that game? Yeah, I mean, I think I said all last week that Michigan had no chance unless they did a couple things. Um, that would be the only way to have a chance is they need to get the run game going. They need to limit the amount of times Caden McNamara put it in the air, the air which they did. And uh, they had to dominate up front on, on the offensive line of scrimmage, and they really had to dominate on the defensive line of scrimmage because if you gave C.J. Stroud any sort of semblance of a pocket, he was going to find a wide-open receiver because their three receivers were just so good. And all those three things came to fruition. I think the, the weather certainly helped in, in Michigan's favor. But, yeah. I mean – the reason they won that game was Aiden Hutchinson and, and, and uh, David Ajaba <laughs> on the defensive ends. Um, they just were in CJ Stroud's pocket all night or all afternoon. Um, didn't give him any time to find a person. And, and, you know, when, uh, when he did have a moment uh, to, to find someone, he found a wide open receiver 95% of the time. Um, and, and so if, if those two guys, uh, Ajabo and, and Hutchinson weren't there, then uh, they, the game could have got ugly, I think. But, you know, the, the Michigan kind of, knew what their game plan was and stuck to it. And like I said, the weather helped them being not great and snowy. Uh, the, it kind of gives you a kind of ground and pound mentality from the start. And, and that, that worked in their favor. You know, Hassan Haskins played great and uh, Blake Quorum is a little bit of a change of pace back. He, he really popped off too. And, and it, 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 it was fun to watch, especially my mom's a huge Michigan fan. She's from Detroit. Um, and she was about to have a, a heart attack during that game. They were, they were up 15 with like two minutes left. And she's like, oh, we're going to blow it. I know we're going to blow it. I've seen this so many times. I'm like, mom, they're going to win. What are you talking about? She was legitimately about to have a heart attack. It was really funny. That is funny. No, it, 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 was, it was incredible. And, you know, I, I would just be worried if I were a, a Michigan fan that, you know, yeah, you got the monkey off your back and you're feeling all good. But, you know, Iowa's offense is bad, but they got a really good defense this week really in Indianapolis. Good. So don't, don't, don't just uh, – buy your tickets to the playoff just yet. You got to take care of business in Indy this week. For sure. For sure. The thing that impressed me the most about uh, the end, the defensive ends that you're talking about, particularly Hutchinson, is it seemed like not only, obviously they dominated the line of scrimmage and, and disrupted a lot of things, but it seemed like they made their biggest plays at the biggest moments. Oh yeah. And especially late, late in the fourth, when Ohio state was still in it before Michigan got the two score lead, you know, they had like, uh, I don't know if they had back-to-back sacks or a sack and then a, a knockdown or whatever. And it was yeah. just right when you thought, oh, maybe this is when your mom was like, oh, they're going to blow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then they had two plays back-to-back that just sucked any momentum away that Ohio State was building with the drive. And yeah. it was just really 
uh, it was just really incredible to watch. And uh, I had somebody ask me if I thought uh, Hutchinson should be a finalist for the Heisman Trophy. Absolutely should be. And after this game, and also based on the, the fact that there's no clear-cut favorite. If, if there's any year for I would a agree. Player, if there's any year for a defensive player to win the Heisman, it's this year. Right. There's, there's no clear-cut favorite offensively. There's, you know, maybe three guys that have kind of gone back and forth a little bit this year, but they've all, uh, they've had their moments. They've not performed. I mean, uh, Alabama's quarterback did not perform that well against Auburn. Obviously, Ohio State's quarterback did not perform as well against Michigan. Yeah. Uh, Michigan State's Walker just, I mean, he disappeared in the Ohio State game because Ohio State was outplaying them so much. Um, but in contrast to them, Hutchinson has had his biggest moments in the biggest games. Yeah. And has completely disrupted things and dominated on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that. I think he should be a finalist, at least. Um, I think that that would be incredible. I think it would be really cool if Michigan and Michigan State had finalists at the same time also. I'm not really sure if that's ever happened before. Probably I don't really know. I, I, I would know. guess not. I mean, so that that would be pretty cool as well. But just I feel like it would be a good acknowledgement by the committee, too, that defense matters. And I think that I know there's defensive awards and everything like that. But if the best player – and the most dominant player in college football is on the defensive side. It should be them. And now this is not like I didn't now. Don't get me wrong. I growing up, my whole family went to Michigan. I did not go to Michigan. I was a Michigan fan as a kid. I really, as a, you know, being a sports editor has really leveled my not, I don't, I'm not a fan anymore, but I don't dislike them. You know what I mean? I'd root yeah. for both Michigan and Michigan state uh, or the better story ah, yeah, um, yeah. as a journalist, but but when I was a kid, Charles Woodson won the Heisman. I never thought he would win the Heisman. Now, don't get me wrong. I knew he was the most electric player in the game, but Peyton Manning was that year. Like, I really couldn't believe that he won the Heisman Trophy over Peyton Manning that year, um, which was, uh, you know, incredible. I mean, looking back, I can. But the fact that it had really never happened before and there was a really great quarterback that was a front runner, I was really surprised by that. So I think this... I agree with you. I think if there's ever a, another year for it to be a defensive player, it's this year. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, if they keep going, if they, if they beat Iowa and they make it into the, uh, the playoff and then even win one of the playoff games and end up in the championship game, win or lose, if he's still having big games, Hutchinson's having big games getting there. How could you not vote for him? Well, and, and the thing is for me, like the Heisman, like uh, it's it's be, become construed as like this offensive award because an offensive player always wins it or like a quarterback always wins it or, or a wide receiver last year or something always wins it. Uh, but like if you look at the top four teams in, in college football this year who are right now what Georgia, Alabama, Michigan and Cincy, um, I mean, you, you can't you can't win the Heisman if you're not the best player on your team. And all the best players on those teams are all defensive guys. Like right. Jordan Davis at Georgia is like 6'7", 380 pounds, and he's just an absolute unit. Will Anderson at Alabama has like 30 tackles for loss and like 14 sacks. If you take away his sacks, he has more tackles for loss than anybody else in the country still, um, That's which crazy. is absurd. Um, obviously, Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo on the lines for, for, for Michigan. And then 
for Cincy, their entire defense is fantastic. That's how they're winning games. That's how a group of five team is going to make the playoffs because they have defenses, guys like um, a cornerback, Ahmad Gardner, Sauce Gardner, who has more touchdowns than he does touchdowns allowed, who's a, as a defensive back, which is just absurd. He got a fifth one this year or, or this past week. Um, so, I mean, if there's every year for it to be a defense guy, it's going to be it because you mentioned the quarterback from Alabama. Yeah, he's good, but he's not even the best player on his team, so he can't win the Heisman right. in my mind. Right, I would agree with you on that. That's that that should be a determining if you're not the best player on your, if you're not the best player on your team, you can't win the Heisman. You shouldn't be able right. To win the and if you have a bunch of defensive guys that are in the running, now I don't. It's going to be the one. It's going to be the one that people remember for yeah. the big moments. And I, I mean, I don't think Aiden Hutchinson should win the Heisman. I think he should be in New York City. I think he's earned right. a spot in New York City, but I don't think he'll win it. I think. I think Jordan Davis from Georgia should win it. I mean, that dude is just absurd. Um, right. But that, that's me. And also that's not going to happen because voters are like, well, I don't have the stats for defense and it's, it's not the same. Right. You can't tangibly, tangibly put it there. It's like, well, just watch the games. Right. I mean, I think that there's a chance that they have a defensive player in at there should in be. New York in live, but there should be three. There and, should be multiple. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just don't see that happening. No. <laughs> Um, but it should, and that would the be the last time a defensive player was even in New York, like Manti Teo in 2013. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think that's the last time that I was a while ago. Him. Yeah. I don't know of anybody else since, since then. I mean, there was a, I mean, there was a, there was a few what? years after Woodson where I feel like people looked at defenders more. And so you had a couple, Yeah, you know, but what year yeah, was just, this, what year was the Dominican Sue? I feel like that was like maybe oh nine or ten or something. That that's the year he should have won the Heisman. If right. there's ever a year for a defensive player to win the Heisman that didn't, it's in the Dominican Sue. Um, right. He had he just an fantastic. absolutely absurd season that year for Nebraska. Um, yeah. but I think Teo was the most recent solely defender. Like there have been defensive slash special teams guys, but the last right. year defender to make it, I think it's I think it's Manti Teo, which is a long time right. ago. I was in high school. Right. That was, it was quite a, quite a while ago. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. They got Iowa, Michigan's got Iowa this week. Yeah. Uh, speaking of defensive ends, Iowa's one of Iowa's starting defensive ends is Zach Van Valkenburg from Zeeland West. Uh, he was all big 10 last year. He's having another great year this year. Um, you know, it's just, they had a couple of bumps in the road, but they really, as I know you mentioned this about the Michigan game, as the weather gets worse, Iowa gets better, yeah, because their de- defense runs the game. Yeah, it controls the entire game, every game they've played, and you know the the colder it gets, the less. I mean, I know this will be an indoor game, yeah, you know, so it's a little bit different, but like it, that's how they've done it this year, though, and it, it was impressive to uh, watch how their defense single handedly beat. Nebraska. Um, yeah. Fittingly, Van Valkenburg was the one they got to grab the interstate trophy or whatever and raise yeah. that up. I think they um, had like what one offensive touchdown that game, or, or if it, they did right. have one, it was like a set up by a turnover that came at the one yard line. Um, right. I watched part of that game and then I was like, oh, it's 24 nothing Nebraska or 24 7. We're like, this game's over. You're like, good for you, Scott right. Frost. Like, you're turning it around. And then I right. just see people on my timeline talking about Nebraska's blowing it. And I was like, oh, no, not again. Right. Um, I don't know how much of that was Iowa or, or just Nebraska being notorious for blowing. I mean, they blocked a punt, scored it. They, yeah. I mean, like they did a lot of things. Um, yeah, they did a lot of things. Got a fumble offense. and scored it. They, I mean, it was just their offense is not good. So no, like, it's it's. I would argue and say it's bad. 
it's yeah bad. it's so like against michigan like and that, but this is like the fear of a hangover game or a trap game because that's what i'm saying yeah ohio or iowa's defense is good enough to stop michigan's offense absolutely Iowa's and, defense is a lot better than ohio state's defense right so that is going to make points at a premium for michigan yeah however Michigan's D or Michigan's offense should, I mean, Michigan's defense should and could shut Iowa out. Oh yeah. Michigan's Michigan's defense should have, if, if Iowa scores more than 10 points on offense alone, like not counting like pick sixes or something like that, or even like short fields, if Iowa gets the ball off a punt or a kickoff and can go down the field and score more than 10 points in this game, I'll be stunned. Yeah, like they, they just they can't they can't they it's gonna not. be interesting. It's definitely gonna be a different kind of game. I mean, I'm picturing like like 17 to zero. I, I think 13 to I, zero, something like that. I'm not like a uh a betting man by any sense of the word. I, I don't gamble, but I think I saw the spread it was like Michigan uh minus ten and a half. I would bet on Iowa for that. I don't. I don't think Iowa's going to get blown out. Sure, it's it's a it's a better money return style bet. I mean, like yeah, this. like I th- I think Michigan will win as long as they take it seriously and their offense does what they need to do. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a blowout by any means. No, maybe. I mean, I should give Iowa's defense credit for that. This they can, they uh, they've been good enough that they can avoid a shutout on their own on the defensive side. So yeah, Iowa's defense. So, is really so maybe good. maybe seventeen seven. That, that I can see that maybe something like that maybe maybe like twenty one ten. Um, I know yeah. that goes against what I just said at ten and a half, but like something right. like that maybe maybe thirteen twenty one. But it, on the flip side, if I, if Iowa gets the ball first and somehow puts together a scoring drive, alarms should be raised everywhere. Absolutely, because, because the defense could shut them out the rest of the, the game, and yeah. that's just. You know, it's kind of what Michigan did to Ohio State. They went marched down and scored right away, and everybody's like, "Oh, maybe Michigan's yeah. got a shot." Yeah. So I mean, that's what it'll be very that. exciting. I'm glad Iowa's in it. I'm glad it's not a rematch against Wisconsin. Um, oh, I think because they haven't played Iowa in a couple of years. Well, and is overrated to begin with. It's it's know. just uh, I think that's a good. Um, I think it's good for the Big Ten. You know that it's not a a, a rematch of a lopsided game. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's got, you know, two of the best defenses, I think is going to be really um, exciting. It's yeah. one of those games that you worry about national ratings because there's going to be like no scoring, <laughs> but. Well, I think, um, I think, I think that just the fact that Michigan has a chance to punch a ticket to the playoff is going to make it intriguing. And, and, right. and the, the whole nation, you either like Jim Harbaugh, or you like to hate Jim Harbaugh. So there's really, everyone's either going to be rooting for him or rooting against him. So, so yeah, I think nobody hates to hate him. Everyone loves to hate him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I, you know, I, how, also, I, I know it's kind of getting off topic, but how crazy is it that Michigan beats Ohio state for the first time in like 11 years. And that's like the third craziest college football story in the past four days with, right. with Brian Kelly leaving and, and Lincoln Riley leaving and all that. Um, yeah. which is just, both of those are stunning, but um, right. it, it's just hilarious. This is why I love this stupid sport. It's so stupid. Right. It's so dumb, but it's, it's so crazy. Stupid. Well, it's, it's amazing how much action-packed stuff happens in a 12-game season. <laughs> like, that's or even a 12-hour uh, period. In a 12-hour right. period from when Michigan beat Ohio State. Michigan beat Ohio State. Lincoln Riley said at a press conference, I'm not going to be the next head coach at LSU. About three hours later, he was the head coach at USC. Um, right. And then Brian Kelly is just like, yeah, no, I'm going to leave Notre Dame for LSU. 
while Notre Dame still has a very realistic chance to make the playoff. Yeah, it was weird timing for that to be announced. Uh, and, and he's not going to coach. He's not coaching in, in, in a playoff game, even if they make the playoff. He's not going to coach in it. He's done. He's in. A, he's in LSU. That's insane to me that any coach. If, like, if, if Oklahoma State, Cincinnati, or Michigan lose, which I, I think Michigan has a chance to lose, I think Cincinnati has a chance to lose. I think Oklahoma State also has a chance to lose. If any of those three teams lose, Notre Dame is going to make the playoff, right. and they're going to have an interim head coach in the playoff. Right, which is so strange. Which I mean, this hilarious. is the same. I think this is this is what's wrong in a way with college football. I, I honestly feel like there should be a rule that you can't hire a coach until the season's over. I know that. I know there. I've heard plenty of, uh, you know, the opposite end of that article or the, of that argument. Just you know, with amount of time it takes to start fresh in a program and all that kind of stuff, then they need to not have so much time before the bowl games or something. I mean, like if that's the case, like there needs, I mean, now there's not because you have all these conference championship games yeah. and then it's only a couple of weeks. If you can, if you can prove to me what Brian Kelly can do positively to make a, an actual worthy impact in the next three weeks at LSU, instead of coaching his team that he's, that he's coached, it just, it should be a rule so that coaches don't have to make that decision. Like, I mean, the, when, the only the only tangible thing that that I mean, it could set a program back because now with the early signing days in the middle of December, even before bowl games, so like, right, you get the job at the end of November, you have to rally together to salvage a recruiting class um, to even even make a semblance that you're going to make some sort of dent in year one or year zero or, or year two right. as, as your first year head coach because college football is weird. Like, you can come in at year one. And your team's going to be bad because it's nothing like what you want it to be. Your roster doesn't fit your needs. You're, it's not like right. you can be GM in the NFL and go get, I need this, this, and this. Like right. the guys who are there are the guys who are there. And the transfer portal has alleviated that a bit, but it's just, it's the, 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 the first few weeks of a coach are definitely um, necessary and you need to be recruiting really hard. But there, there are guys like Scott Frost when he was at Central Florida, he took the Nebraska job the day after the conference title game, or maybe even the same day. Um, yeah, it was the same day because he was in the locker room talking to his guys about it after they won. Um, but he stayed and coached the bowl game with them, but he was on the road recruiting for Nebraska when, when they weren't practicing. Because you get like, I think it's 15 practices. When you're not practicing, you, you're you doing your own. Like they're working out right. stuff, but like coaches can be on the road recruiting. So, right. Just, he was I mean, if it shows the business side of things that like, you you know, that it's that it's all about the business side of things. Because like, I mean, I've been, you and I have both been a part of teams before. Yeah. To, to have your coach, especially if you really enjoy playing for the coach, to have them leave before your final game. It's bad. It's just it's just bad. Like, they should be able to figure out the recruiting dates differently or not allow coaches to leave before their season is over or something. Um, and that's one of the bigger or reasons why I – They I could leave. Like, they could announce their – they can't – like, that coaches can't hire somebody until after the bowl, like January 1st or something. I don't I know. But like, the correctors? Yeah, like yeah. I just, I just really don't see, I just really don't see, uh, I see that devaluing the you know supposed team aspect of this, and I think that that's a really, I mean, like, uh, that's why Michigan got Rich Rod instead of Les Miles. They they offered the job to Les Miles from LSU, and he was in a uh, the championship game or the bowl or the Sugar Bowl or something like that, and he said. I've been with this team 12 yeah, years yeah. or whatever it was. I'm not going to leave them yeah. until the, I, we finish this. And Michigan just 
kind of told him to take it or leave it. And he said, no, I'm going to stay. If you can't wait three weeks, probably then whatever. The and then they got Rich Rod and they ended up in this mess. Well, probably dodged the bullet not getting less miles. Agree. Well, we'll I, think both, I think both sides of that dodged a bullet. At the time, less miles also dodged a bullet. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, it's just – I mean, that's, that's just one of the reasons, like going back to how coaches don't leave, like, that's one of the reasons why I know Scott Frost has kind of become like a meme in the college football world, like can't win games, blows leads and everything. That's just one of the reasons why I respect the man so much is because he was at central Florida and he stayed through the peach bowl, took them on an undefeated season, even after he had accepted the Nebraska job, like he had his introductory press conference at Nebraska had been recruiting at Nebraska and then came back to Orlando for all the practices and coached them and beat Auburn in the peach bowl. And then once he did that, he's like, all right, I'm done. I'm done with UCF. Right. All in the bra- but like, uh, yeah, that definitely was the like right. That. And Billy Napier at Louisiana Lafayette is doing the same thing right now. He's coaching in the Sun Belt title game, but he's already accepted the head coaching job at Florida. Like, right. I mean, like, otherwise, what do you teach? You're telling any mid-major school that even if you have a great season, your coach will be gone before you get to the end. Like, that's that's really crappy. I mean, at this point, it's not even mid-majors because it's, it's mid-majors or Notre Dame or Oklahoma. So, right, so right. At this point, it's, it's whoever has the most money. Um, right. So, I don't understand crazy. why you leave Notre Dame for LSU because, uh, you know, LSU is not – I mean, I get they won the national title recently, and it's very easy to recruit it's there. It's SEC money or something. I don't know. SEC money, like, easier to recruit. Academic standards aren't as high, but it's just – Still. You're a top five still, team in the country perennially. To, to me, like, unless there's some sort of inner turmoil that we don't know, I can't understand why anyone would leave Notre Dame ever. Oh, it, it's hard to recruit to Notre Dame. I get that. It's hard to recruit Notre Dame. It's a hard sell getting those kids from South Florida or Texas or something come up and be in the freezing cold weather at this really conservative Catholic school um, and be a star for four months of the year. And then the rest of the eight months are going to be awful. Um, right. So I can see why you would leave for, for LSU where it's just like anybody with a pulse gets accepted. Um, really great weather all the time. Best athletes in the world get to play in the SEC. Like absolutely. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's an easier recruit, that's for sure. But it just yeah, seems. That, like I mean, that. That, that's the whole reason for a coach to leave and get better, easier yeah. recruit, better athletes, better uh, turnout on the field. And yeah. you know, if, uh, apologies to anybody who's listening to this who went to LSU. I didn't actually mean it like that. It's just the academic standards are not as rigorous as Notre Dame. I think we can. Right, right. I mean, even if even if LSU is a state school, middle of the pack, Notre Dame is in the higher Notre, level yeah, of academic is, standards. Is, is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting for sure. So we'll see what happens in the Big Ten. Uh, title game and then beyond we'll definitely break that down next week um so the other big story this week coming up uh the golden era ballot vote for the hall of fame is sunday night uh zealand native jim cott is a finalist on this ballot again um i won't get it too far into it like i have in the past uh as will has been both shocked amazed and maybe disturbed at how much I know about Hall of Fame voting history. Um, but I used, I was into that when I was younger. I did my internship at the Hall of Fame when I was in college. And now uh, an actual Hall of Fame voting issue has been a cross in my crosshairs as a professional since Jim Cox from Zealand uh, for all these years. So it's been, it's definitely been um, something I've paid a lot of attention to. But uh, so, the quick basics, the Golden Era Committee meets every five years. There's 10 finalists. These are players that have dropped off the writer's ballot, um, and they have three different eras of the game. This is the Golden Era that's like um, it's like from like 1950 to 1973 uh, or something like that. It's like so – or basically 
or 48 to 73. It's like from integration to the advent of the DH, basically. Um, and so Jim Cott's been a finalist on this a bunch. The last time they had a vote, he missed by two votes, but also his former teammates, uh, Tony Oliva and Dick Allen, each missed by one vote. And then Minnie Minoso, Mr. White Sox, missed by four votes. And I think Maury Wills from the Dodgers missed by three votes. So there's a lot of candidates that keep eating up each other's votes. The committee of 16 can only vote to up to four people each, which is what happens when you have six great candidates. Then everybody ends up a vote short, um, which has been really hard. The only uh, Cubs third baseman, Ron Santos, the only person who's been voted in from this era in any shape or form of different committees since 2001. So in 20 years, only one person has made it in this group, which is why the log jam continues. And it's the same finalists every year. So Jim Cott from Zealand, left-handed pitcher, mostly for the Minnesota twins. He won 16 gold gloves as the best fielding pitcher in the game, which was a record until Greg Maddox broke it. He won 283 games in his career. Um, and uh, would have won the Cy Young award uh in i think 1966 but they did they only did one the first few years they only did one for all of baseball not one per league like they do now he was the best pitcher in the american league in 1966 uh but sandy koufax won the cy young with one of his best seasons so um that's the those are his numbers his for people who like analytics his analytics aren't quite as good which is a reason that his his case has just kind of stayed stagnant as he doesn't have a driving force of the, Oh my gosh, these analytics make him look so much better with either war or ERA plus or whatever. Um, but he's definitely got a shot. Um, and that vote will be this week. He's got a few teammates, former teammates that are on the committee, which is a good sign, but that also means Tony Oliva and Dick Allen have a few, a few um, teammates on the committee. So um, my prediction is that, Dick Allen and Tony Oliva, who both missed by one vote five years ago, both make it. I would love to see Jim Cott or Minnie Minoso sneak in there as well. Um, I would, I honestly really wouldn't have a problem with any of the 10 guys making it. That's how strong that the ballot is on the field. I mean, the worst person on the ballot is Roger Maris, uh, who broke Babe Ruth's single season home run record and won two MVPs. So if that's the worst, I know he had a shorter career, but that's still pretty good. It's pretty good. And when you're talking about fame and famous, that's pretty famous. As a kid, I couldn't believe he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. It just didn't make any sense to me because I didn't really get how they did that. But I'm like, well, if he broke the most hallowed record, how was he not in the Hall of Fame? So we'll see what happens. But having this, having the teammates on there helps. And if maybe he can sneak in as the third person. Um, but uh, I would hate to see him miss by one vote. That would just be horrible after missing by two and being so close. I mean, he has consistently told me he doesn't really think about it. He doesn't really care, but I don't, I mean, I believe him in the fact that he doesn't, he, his personality, he doesn't really care in the fact that he, he, it's not, he's not living or dying with the moment. Like some yeah. candidates do years after years, which I think is healthy. Um, but at the same time, how can you not be paying attention if you miss by two votes or one vote? I mean, like that's, uh, that's re that's really tough. But he's he's also consistently said that Tony Oliva, his teammate, and Dick Allen, they both deserve to be in ahead of him. Um, objectively, I would argue that Jim Cott's probably the fifth, maybe the fifth best, uh, fifth or sixth best candidate on there. Yeah. Um, behind Oliva, Allen, Minnie Minoso, and third baseman Ken Boyer from the Cardinals. Um, 
But again, like I said, I would have no problem with all 10 being in. That's how crazy we are. The other era committees, I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, but this year has been such a log jam. So we'll see what happens Sunday night. And we'll be back to kind of break down what happened with the voting, you know, at our next uh, next podcast as well. But uh, I feel like I've been writing this could be the year about Jim Cott for like 20 years. So um, I actually just and Tony Oliva, um, my dad and I just uh, met him at a sports cards show in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. And I, you know, got to get his autograph and shake his hand. And I told him, you know, two weeks, I think you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. And which is really funny because the first time I met Tony Oliva was in 1999 when I was at my first Hall of Fame induction ceremony and he was there as a guest. And I met him then. And I also told him, I think you're going to be in the Hall of Fame soon. And that was 1999. So it's a, that was when I was a, uh, a senior in high school. So um, he's been waiting a long time. Let's just say that um, he had a great career, but it was cut short by injuries. But it was amazing. Three batting titles, led the league and hits five times, um, you know, was great. It was just short. He was in the argument for best player in the American league in the sixties. So hall of fame material in my book. But like I said, I'd vote for, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a problem with any of them, but we'll see if Jim Cott from Zealand can, uh, can kind of sneak in with Tony Oliva and Dick Allen. We'll see how that goes. Um, he, Jim, by the way, also Jim, to be noted, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, and Maury Wills are only the only three of the 10 who are still alive. Uh, Dick Allen died the day after the vote was supposed to be last year, but they postponed the in-person thing to this year. So it was actually supposed to be last year, the vote. Um, and Dick Allen died the very next day that it was supposed to be. So, which is awful. That's, um, yeah, that's very sad. Like really awful. So, um, so hopefully those guys all make it. That would be great. So. Um, Grand Valley's football season over switching gears. Um, they played Ferris again. The first time they played Ferris state, they lost by a touchdown and they had a lot of mistakes. Yeah, this time they, they arguably outplayed Ferris the first time they played them. That can um, definitely not be the case. That can be said this time. Um, they had four or five turnovers, but they also couldn't stop anything Ferris did. Uh, um, and Ferris state was ahead by 30 points by halftime. And it just, continued to roll it was uh just not a great game for the lakers unfortunately that's it was a very sour ending but a great they they lost only two games and both of them to the number one team in the country that's still alive but it's still a team they could have beaten if they played their best yeah yeah Um, absolutely so it's just one of those bittersweet things where you know this it was one of their better seasons they've had in a long time but they won't feel like it Um, especially the way it happened too with them getting them feeling like they should have won the first time and then just absolutely not having a shot in that second game so I think the d2 whole playoff system needs some sort of revamping that the number one team in the country can play the number five team in the country in the second round seems bizarre and and not particularly fair agreed Um, but D three is like that too, where they do it all regionally. Yeah, I mean D three, it makes a little more sense, um, just because there's like you know so many D three teams across the. Yeah, country. there's more schools in D three than there are in D two for sure. Exactly, that's why it makes a bit more sense to regionalize it. But like, I mean D two teams, like these are big budget programs giving out scholarships and stuff. So you know, make them travel a little bit. Who cares? Make 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 the playoffs more equitable to to some degree. You know, I mean, right? I, like I said, this is my first time ever covering D two athletics, so. I might just be way off base, but it seems just by the naked eye and, and just, 
me kind of parachuting in looking at it, it seems a bit bizarre that the number five team in the country would have to play the number one team in the country in the second round of the playoffs. Agreed. Especially knowing that they've already played each other in a close game too. Yeah. I mean, I mean like that wouldn't happen in a, in an NCAA basketball tournament. They wouldn't meet till like the sweet 16 at, at a middle. Right. right. So yeah, it'll be interesting. And also there's a lot of scuttlebutt that grand Valley's looking to go D one in the next couple of years. Um, so that would, that would be a game changer in a lot of ways as well. Um, they definitely have, I mean, they have the size and the now the most of the athletic facilities have been updated. They have the ability to do that. And they have as many students as most of the Mac schools around. Yeah. Um, it's just that that last step is a big one. <laughs> so, yeah, well, uh, yeah. They, they would certainly go FCS instead of FBS in football. Right. I imagine. Yes. They um, yes, they would they would go FCS. Um, but that would also make them that would change everything for the other sports too, which would be interesting. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That that's a sport where it would change probably the least is, is football. You just wouldn't make the playoffs every year. You just wouldn't be playing in the GLIAC. Yeah. And you, you, I mean, you certainly wouldn't be making the playoffs every year at that point either. Right. Um, not every year like this, but like, yeah. you know, like in D2 that a lot of their teams softball and whatever have been dominant enough that a move to oh, FBS yeah. would be that big of a deal. Um, and then even just to, I mean, for FBS, that's for football, but like for, for them to be a D one softball program, they could, they could go in and not be out of it for a Mac championship. No. Yeah. Especially the Mac is a very weak softball conference. I think. Yeah. I mean, central wins it all the time and is in the regional, but outside of central. Yeah. I mean, and, and what grand Valley, what made it to the college world series this year? Um, yeah, like four, like three of the last four, maybe. Yeah, even. So I, mean, like they, I, I think uh, if any sport could just, you know, slide right in and, and compete at D one level, probably softball or, or, or women's soccer, maybe. Um, right. Women's soccer might be a bit tougher, but still, I mean, right. They're, they're final four bound every year, it seems. Right. For sure. Um, it, should, it'll, it would be, it would be interesting. It would be a couple years out. Um, I don't know how that works with, if they would need a new pool. I mean, they don't have, I don't necessarily think they have a division one pool, but I haven't been in there in a couple of years either. So, um, but they also have hosted a lot of their GLIAC meets and stuff at the Holland Aquatic Center, which is huge. So, um, you know, that might not be as big of a deal as I think. So um, it's just be really interesting to see because uh, Grand Valley, like we were saying, different sports, different levels. It could, and soccer, I mean, come on, soccer has been in the, in the final four, like yeah, 10 of the last 11 yeah. years or something like that. I mean, like it's, it, that could be really interesting. So um, change the dynamic a bit. So, um, and for local athletes, we get a lot of local athletes that go to Grand Valley. Um, like Abby Wynn from Zealand West is go is just signed to play soccer there. If in two years, the middle of her career, they go D one, that's a huge deal. And she's a D one level kind of player. You know, people yeah. that have D one talent, a lot of times go to grand Valley cause they'd rather, you know, it's, it's more fun to win yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> than go to a D one big 10 team. That's one and 11, you know, like, so, uh, that'll, that'll change a lot of things too, which will be interesting. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, high school basketball started uh, last, night, last oh, night as of this. Um, Will, you were at Holland Christian. Well, uh, yeah, beat, Co- Covenant. Beat, but at Covenant Christian, Christian beating Holland Christian, or Holland Christian beat Covenant Christian. They got a new coach. They got a lot, like a, a lot of new faces in the lineup. Uh, what did you see from them in their opener? Yeah, I mean, I sort of went into this game fully expect. I told Coach Levi Painter, he's first year, he had been with the freshman team for the past three years, but he took over the program um at the varsity level this past year 
I told him before or after the game ended, I'm like, I fully expect you guys get, you know, spanked around and, and, and beat pretty badly because they were playing Covenant, who were regional finalists last year, um, won the district, obviously, uh, and had five seniors in their starting five. Whereas Holland Christian had one senior on their whole roster and she was not in the starting five. They had a freshman in their starting five. And I'm like, all right, this could get ugly real fast, especially considering Holland Christian came off like a four and 11 season last year. They weren't all that good, but no, I mean, this first quarter was tough. They, they scored five points. All of them came off of free throws. So they didn't make a field goal until about halfway through the second quarter, but then they, they, uh, they got hot. I mean, Trina Vanderswag is sort of the, the, the girl who powers that team. She hit a couple threes in, in the second quarter and then just kind of exploded from there. Um, I don't remember the final score of the game, but, but they won by, I think it was like 43 to 34 or something like that. I mean, they won by a, a decent margin in a game like that. Their defense played incredible all night, um, really fighting on boards. Um, and, and, and Trina Vanderswag is, is going to be a, a girl to watch um, if she can keep playing like that. Cause she's a spark of that offense and, and, and they really play, uh, play tenacious. And then the, the freshman Cameron Vandenbosch, I think is her name. She's, she's, she doesn't look like a freshman. I'll just say that she's like as tall as me and I'm five eleven. Like she's, she's tall and can uh, consider she's uh, already in the starting five of a varsity team. And she's only going to get better from here. One would imagine is, is pretty impressive. So that's exciting to watch if you're a Holland Christian fan too. For sure. For sure. And I was uh, at unity Christian Zealand West beat unity Christian uh, in their season opener. Uh, Zealand West jumped out to a 16 to zero lead. And then in the second half was behind. <laughs> So it was one of the weirdest roller coaster kind of games that I've seen. Uh, but uh, they they figured out a way to right the ship, and that was through their defense. They did more pressure, and they got a lot of transition baskets. They're not necessarily going to be a great shooting team, but Kara Bartels underneath, she's uh, you know six over six feet, and she uh, she scored eighteen points. And then everything else they had was pretty much on the run. I think they hit like one jumper you know, the whole game, but everything else was free, th- or, you know, on the run or free throws after being on the run. And uh, they got a lot of great athletes. I, I wasn't sure they have a new coach as well. Um, Ryan Lane, and they have a couple kids back, but their team did not do particularly well last year. And I wasn't sure. I thought this was going to maybe be a really down year for them or a rebuilding kind of year. Um, but all they have like three three athletes from the all area of vol- our all area volleyball team that are apparently really well rounded athletes that are juniors that I just didn't know were you know were sophomores last year like on a JV team or something and uh, or didn't play so much on a varsity team and now they're all athletic they got all kinds of athletes on that team Abby Wynn after a year off um, to focus on soccer is uh, you know is back as well and she's really good defender and brings a lot of energy. So, I mean, all of a sudden they went from maybe they've got one or two players to, wow, now they have six or seven, including a freshman who comes off the bench and plays well. They only have two seniors on this team as well, uh, three seniors, uh, excuse me. And uh, it's just not what I expected at all, um, but in a good way. So uh, this is going to be a better year for Zeeland West than, at least than I anticipated. Um, and it looks that way for Allen Christian too, which is really good uh, for the area because, you know, o- across the board, the girls, the last few years have graduated so much all state talent. Um, you know, obviously AJ Edgar from Hamilton is playing at Iowa now, and she's actually as a freshman seeing playing time, yeah. um, which is uh, 
which is awesome. But, uh, you know, we got Iowa's young players like rising up. Five team in the country, too. It's not like they're just some random D1 team. Like, they're a top five team, I think. Right, right. I mean, she's, I mean, she's, she hasn't played a ton by any means. No, she, I, I look still, at that. She has two points, but like, still, she's right. playing. But she's playing and she's, you know, and, and she's on a, you know, on track to be a key contributor in the future for this yeah. team, which is really exciting. So, um, but yeah, so it's the girls' season's off, you know, off to a good start. Got some good double local matchups coming this Friday. Zeal and Weston Hamilton play each other. Holland Christian and West Ottawa play each other. Black River and Fenville play each other. Uh, so it's a big first Friday night for local matchups. Um, and then the boys' season tips off uh, next week, and we'll have full coverage of that next week. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's where we're at from now. I mean, a lot of the other sports are getting going, but we'll uh, we'll dive further into boys' swimming and wrestling and hockey and hopefully cheer, uh, you know, in the next few weeks. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week to talk about the Big Ten championship game, what happened with the Hall of Fame vote, break down some boys' basketball uh, coverage as well. So, um, yeah, get out and watch some basketball. Uh, the season is just beginning and uh, uh, should be should be a very entertaining year. And uh, we'll be back next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any – type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.